Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the 157th episode of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is actually the fifth, I think, in the sequence that's called Ruminations, which is basically me ruminating, I suppose, talking about topics as they enter into my consciousness. It's something I don't do very often, but I'm told that it works well, so I try it every now and then. This time, one thing that's been on my mind of late is the term, and I guess the concept, arrogance. Uh, this is something that I'm often called, arrogant. It's something that I hear other people often called, arrogant. Maybe me more than others. And it's not a totally obvious to me what we mean when we use this term. What is it? Is it that you believe you're right? Well, that can't be it. Arrogance is a pejorative term. It's a term that implies something that's not so good. And thinking that you're right, well, you know, we should all think that we're right a good part of the time. One would hope a whole lot of the time because we would be right a whole lot of the time. Thinking that you're right about certain things is totally warranted. So what's arrogance? Well, maybe it's thinking you're right because you're you. That is to say, you just take for granted that what you think is right. And not only that, you tend to take to granted that what anybody else thinks, if it's different from what you think, is wrong. Uh, it's wrong by virtue of the fact that it's different from what you think. So arrogance, I think, is something like uh, assuming that you're correct, don't need evidence, it's just because you're always correct. Uh, it's the way it goes. And it's also assuming when you run into a situation where somebody disagrees with you, well, uh, since you must be correct, they must be incorrect. And that would constitute arrogance. How can we determine whether or not what we're encountering is just honest belief that the person who we're encountering is correct, in other words, they, they think they're correct, and they're arguing on behalf of the view that they have as compared to arrogance? Well, I think one indicator would probably be, does the person care what you have to say? So, if you think that somebody else is being arrogant, one indicator of that would be if they can't hear what you're saying, if they just don't register it, if they don't even try to hear it, if they don't ask for it. They simply assume they're right and you're wrong and there's no need to consider your view. There's no need to make a case, to make an argument. There's no, no need to rebut an argument. So that seems to me is arrogance. I think that a lot of the time uh, there's a confusion between arrogance and confidence. Obviously, a lot of the time arrogance is arrogance. But a lot of the time what's called arrogance is just confidence and a willingness to, to disagree and to argue the point. And you can tell, I think, if the ostensibly arrogant person is in fact not paying any attention to what you're offering by way of evidence or argument and simply asserting their correctness. Similarly, the word hypocrisy comes up a lot, or hypocrite, I guess. So what's that all about? Well, I think that hypocrisy is when someone favors a particular attitude, behavior, or value, let's say, and violates it. So they're propounding something to be good and worth doing and worth uh, respecting, and then 
for themselves, they're neither respecting it or, or acknowledging that it's good, they're simply violating it. And that tends to be hypocrisy. Is it always hypocrisy? No, it might not always be hypocrisy because sometimes uh, something that's good and that's warranted and that's worth emulating and so on in a particular context uh, turns out to be not so good and worthy of emulating and the person might be violating it for that reason. Or at least they might think that's why they're doing it. And so, just as with arrogance, it's not an instant reaction. We can't instantly tell uh, what is and what isn't arrogant or hypocrisy. You have to sort of assess it. You have to see what's going on. What about civility? This is another word I hear a lot. We should be civil. What does that mean? Well, ideally it should mean that we are respectful and we listen and we hear and we respond and so on. Some people think it means saying have a nice day at the end of the day or when you part. Or it's, in other words, there's a, there's a degree to which what people who are paid to deal with um, customers on the phone do is deemed civility. And it isn't. It's often just a lie. It's paternalistic. It is uh, 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 making believe or some such thing. It's saying things without meaning them. And that too, I think, is, you know, there's, there's a, maybe it's sort of obvious, but it isn't always obvious. Alright, so those were three things that have been on my mind of late, and which I talked about a little bit. Another thing that's been on my mind is a TV show. I may have even talked about this before on podcast, but I don't know that I did, so I'll do it again and hope that it's not repetitive. The show is called Dope Sick. D-O-P-E-S-I-C-K. It's, um, I guess it's dope, meaning drugs, or and sick. So, I guess that's how they came up with the name. I really don't know. It's sort of clever. In any case, it's a multi-part TV drama. It's based on real events, but it's not a documentary. It's a drama. It's, uh, you know, it's written. It's got fictional characters in it and so on. But it's based rather closely, it appears to me, very closely, on the oxycodone historical crisis, its origins, its process, the way it was carried out, what happened, the impact of it on people being addicted to the opioid, suffering from the opioid, opioid, dying from the opioid, but also selling the opioid, prescribing the opioid, or being the head of the company and uh, formulating policies regarding the opioid oxycodone. And the show is, I think, pretty remarkable in the following sense. In a good society, with people who were not regulating themselves to get along and to not violate expectations, seeing this one would ask, where could that possibly have happened and why haven't people risen up against the institutions responsible? It doesn't take analysis. You watch Dope Sick and you don't have to have read a book or done a lot of analysis or gone to a lot of talks or what have you in order to both understand what you're seeing and recognize that 
this is accurate. This is very close to what actually went on. Uh, this is revealing. And to then be utterly outraged. And I really mean utterly outraged. I mean berserk with anger. If you live in a community that has been ravaged by the opioid epidemic. It's worth watching. Give it a watch. See what you think. Dope sick. But it brings up another issue. Because when you watch that and you wonder, because you aren't part of the opioid epidemic, let's say, and you don't know somebody who was killed by it, let's say, and you wonder why those who are suffering, how they could watch this and not, you know, want to go down and, and, I don't know, completely demolish the pharmaceutical companies and their heads. And you wonder that, but then you think to yourself, well, wait a second, I am part of something else. I'm part of the country, and the country is subject to something like the opioid epidemic in terms of scale and harm. In fact, two things. In fact, multiple things. So, it's subject to, at the largest end, the global warming and the, the, the misuse of resources and the environment, all of which betoken the likelihood of incredible calamities and incredible human loss. And it's happening all around us. And like the opioid crisis was happening, let's say, all around people in the towns, often not in the big cities, although partly in the rural areas that were being ravaged by it, and still are. And people tried to, tried to live their lives and didn't rise up with pitchforks, so to speak, uh, to confront the problem. Well, most of us aren't rising up with pitchforks to confront the fact of global warming. And yet we do know it. We know it's happening. We really do. Just like people who watch Dope Sick or who experienced it know that that was happening. There's something weird there. There's something strange there. There's a situation where people are undergoing assault, violent assault, in the form of the destruction of the environment, but also in the form of the indignities of work that we undergo all the time, in the form of the the dismissals and the and the uh, arrogance of the system in ignoring our will and our desires and so on and so forth and we put up with it at a very real level we put up with it and the question becomes why do we put up with it why is it important well it's not important to blame anybody or anything like that that makes no sense it's important because if one wants to see change if one wants to see the society change in a fundamental way then one has to understand what the obstacles are to it changing in a fundamental way. And one has to formulate paths of activity, paths of action, paths of organizing, paths of demonstrating, paths of whatever, that overcome the obstacle. And I find myself having a very hard time figuring out exactly what the obstacle is. I no longer think that the obstacle is that people don't know that injustice is all over the place. I no longer think it's that people don't know that the deck is stacked and it is stacked so severely that the results are criminal day by day and over a period of months and years and maybe a couple of decades suicidal for everybody. And yet we go on about our business for the most part. Why is that? It's not because we're totally powerless. 
that's not it because if we if we ask whether or not people have any power sometimes people do exert power people do get upset you could imagine if a if a you know if something invaded a community people would fight they would fight back against it but this other stuff somehow most of us don't fight back i'm not sure what it is i think maybe it's that we don't believe you can win i think maybe it's that we don't believe there's anything better because if there's nothing better or if maybe there's something better but you can't attain it then it does make a certain amount of sense to not fight back because fighting back you can get hurt and you're not going to get anywhere you're not going to win you're not going to attain something that's better so i think that that may be the explanation or at least a significant part of the explanation and that's why revolution z spends so much time talking about strategy and vision another thing that's been on my mind lately is the anti-vax phenomenon this is not small the demonstrations that are going down against the vaccine in many parts of the world now rival demonstrations that are going on for social change let's say against racism or against sexism or against corporate power they rival and i think they're exceeding in many places so that's something that needs i mean what is going on there what what is it that is fueling the anti-vax sentiment we'll now go back to the dope sick show is it so strange is it impossible to empathize with people who are saying you're not going to stick it in my body maybe i'm maybe i'm not yet prepared or i don't believe that i can accomplish anything by standing up against the man, by standing up against the state, by standing up against my employer, the corporation, by standing up against pharmaceutical companies. But I sure as hell can stop you from jabbing me with a with a, a vaccine that I don't trust. And then the question is, why do people don't not trust it? And I find it hard to understand why people find that hard to understand. People don't trust it because pharmaceutical companies are out for profits. Because they are perfectly willing to kill people. Now, they're not willing to kill people in the sense of, you know, the head of the pharmaceutical company taking a machine gun and shooting people. No, that's not what they do. But did they pursue the production of OxyContin? And did they addict people to it? And did they self-consciously enlarge their profits by, in effect, killing people? Yes. And does that make them, in a sense, in a very real sense, mass murderers? Well, are the drug cartels mass murderers because they push heroin or, or cocaine or whatever? Answer, yes. Now, they happen to be more thuggish. They happen to carry around guns. The heads of the pharmaceutical companies don't do that. You know, they're well-cultured and they're, they dress well and they conduct themselves well in public and so on and so forth. But they kill on a vastly larger scale. And that's just OxyContin. Now ask what they're doing with the vaccine. Well, at the same time that maybe somebody in the United States doesn't trust them and is afraid of the vaccine, or is just so fed up that when somebody wants to tell them what they have to do with their body, they're going to rebel against it. Yes, I know there's a contradiction. I know that many of those people are also telling women that they can't get an abortion. I know that. I get that. Life is complex. But 
the fact that they resist having to stick something into their own arm, I can understand. I can empathize with. Are they wrong? Of course they're wrong. They're profoundly wrong. But is it understandable? Yes. It is. It is understandable. And it is not necessarily the case that it is fundamentally a manifestation of their being antisocial, of them not giving a damn about anybody else. I don't think that's true. I don't think it is the case that that's what it has to be a manifestation of. And witness the fact that there are plenty of first care workers. What do you call them? You know, the, the, the first responders. There are plenty of them who are resisting getting a vaccine. And it doesn't surprise me that much because they see the, the ugliness of the health industry all the time. And because they are probably skeptical. And they are also probably fed up. And they're also probably sort of expressing some anger in a situation where maybe they can actually prevent what they're trying to prevent. We come to cynicism. So what's cynicism? I think cynicism, serious cynicism, cynicism of the sort that impacts people's lives, is almost a combination of things. It's a combination of skepticism of everything because of how much lying there is, how much untruth there is, how much manipulation there is. And it's coupled with that attitude of, well, how do you win anything you can't? How do you get anything better? There is nothing better. You put all that together and you have a very cynical human being. You have a human being who is doing what the, the market tells us to do, they're looking out for their own circumstance, they're looking out for their own situation, and trying to, you know, have some impact on it, but not by impacting the larger social setting, because that, they feel, is beyond them. I think maybe I told this story once before, but I'll tell it again. During the um, run-up to the bombing of Afghanistan and to the, you know, the whole war on uh, terror, there was a guy who came to the place where uh, I live and work at, at the time. And he came to fix the computers. And so he's looking around and he sees various posters that we have up. He starts asking questions. We, we have a discussion. And the talk is about uh, the United States bombing Afghanistan, which it was on the verge of doing. And I told him that all of the... Uh, human rights organizations, all the food organizations, all the various um, well-meaning people on the ground in Afghanistan, they were all saying the same thing. They were all saying, if you bomb, you may very well cut short the growing season. You may interrupt the effort to feed the population. And in doing so, you may literally kill one, two, or even three million people. That's what they were all saying doesn't matter whether it's true or not, or whether it was borne out by facts in the future or not, and we don't really know, to tell you the truth, I don't think. But it was the consensus opinion. So the U.S. government was being told, if you bomb, you may kill a million Afghans. And we bombed anyway. And while I'm describing this to him a little more emotively than I'm doing now, because I don't want to get myself upset, he, he started to tear up. He had what I think was was the human response. 
and I, I explained to him, and he, he said, how could that be? And I explained to him that, you know, if you could be a fly on the wall watching them talk about whether or not to bomb Afghanistan, I would wager my arm that what you would see is a discussion that would be considering the implications of doing so for the impression of other countries in the world, of our might and power. You can't cross us, we crush you. And you would see the, a discussion of the implications for the popular mood in the United States. Would it arouse so much dissent as to be counterproductive for the government, for the ruling elites? But what you would not hear, you would not hear hours, you would not hear an hour, you would not hear 10 minutes, you wouldn't hear one minute of discussion of the effect on the population of Afghanistan. Because for the rulers and the high rollers in the United States, because of their whole lifetime of, of being involved in the institutions and in the processes that they're involved in, and you can see it in a movie like Dope Sick, for, because of all that, to them, the Afghan population, human beings, is like, for you, I said to this fellow, ants on your doorstep and you're about to go out and you don't think twice about putting your foot down. It's just not something in your mind. And he understood that and he didn't even disagree with it. He thought, but then, so what? And I told him, you know, something about activism and so on. And he said to me, he knew my name by this time, he said to me, Michael, I know what you're saying, I get it, but really, I can't impact this. My becoming more and more knowledgeable about this and my trying to demonstrate about this or some such thing, it's going to have no effect at all. It's not going to change anything. War isn't going away. But what I can do, however bad things really are, and I get it, what I can do is I can try and do well for my kids and for my spouse and my family. I can make a little bit of difference for us. And so I'm going to try and do that. And to call that cynicism and call it and disparage it, I, I think lets us, political people, people who are committed to winning change, off the hook. The problem here is our inability to reach people who have a perfectly understandable response to the circumstances they see around them and they experience. It's our inability to talk to folks in a way that creates a conversation and creates a, a set of, of revelations, not about what's wrong, which is what we always talk to them about. That's what we organ that's what we do. We go out and we say poverty hurts, racism hurts, sexism hurts. Look at all these ways that it hurts. Look at the international relations and what we're doing to other countries. It hurts. It's not just. It is unjust. It is despicable. Okay, we say all that and we think we're telling them something that they don't know. But people really do know it. People rationalize at times and make believe it isn't the case. People will even defend their country at times and deny it to the hilt. But in a quiet and in a calm mood and where, you know, the truth is coming out and what they deeply feel is coming out, they acknowledge it and they know it. 
when people watch dope sick they don't say to themselves god no pharmaceutical companies don't behave like that this is nonsense who put this together this is just propaganda this is just all a lie I don't think anybody says that when I was a kid 1965 let's say if we saw a movie like dope sick a, a, a serial thing like dope sick on TV we would have thought it was a lie we would have thought no that's not the way things are that's why we went berserk in 1968 and 1969 when we discovered that is or 67 and 66 also when we discovered that it is the way things are and it came as a gigantic gut punch you know that we had been lied to but it isn't the way things are I mean it, 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 that is the way things are and, and we discovered this change and we got furious and but that's not what happens now now when somebody sees dope sick it's not either a lie or holy crap I've been lied to all this time it's of course yeah I get it I understand they just watch it and it just flows right by because it's as they say it's normalized but the fact that it's normalized doesn't mean that people think it's right then it means that people think it's just the way it is there is no alternative so it seems to me and so we come to another idea or another issue or concept or what have you that pops into mind violence not their violence of which there's obviously plenty it's a never-ending flow of constant violence that people endure the violence of indignity the violence of denial the violence of hunger the violence of poverty the violence of flat-out violence the violence of natural disasters that aren't natural they're social the violence of a pandemic that didn't have to be a fraction as bad as it is but is because of social choices profit-seeking all that violence is there that's a fact the violence I'm talking about is different it's the violence of every once in a while you see it in a movie uh, somebody who becomes violent at a pharmaceutical company which is denying their kid medicine which will kill their kid or the violence of somebody who you know strikes back against a company that is working them to death or keeping them in the path of tornadoes so they're blown to smithereens the violence that that surfaces um, at times in people and then you wonder and I think it's going to start to become more visible and prevalent about people who want change becoming violent people who think that we live in a suicide machine which is threatening the existence of the whole planet of everybody and who feel that you know if some thug came up to my house and was threatening me and my family and the only recourse I could see or even a recourse that I could see was to get violent and kind and try to win um, I would do it and people are going to start to think well you know that's what that's what the situation is and maybe what is called for is sabotage maybe what is called for is uh, you know wrecking oil lines maybe what's called for is creating a situation in which the airplanes can't fly maybe what's called and so on and so forth
And I have to tell you that ethically, I think there's a case to be made for it in the sense that it wouldn't be ethically wrong if it was pragmatically possible. Back when I was becoming politicized, when I was fighting against the war in Vietnam, I also was giving lots of speeches, um, in particular where I was a student. And somebody asked me once, actually it was more than once, there were variants of it, but one time it was very graphic. The person asked me with a large audience, you know, would you burn down a, a library if it would end the war in Vietnam? And my response was, I, I laughed, and I said, of course I would. Anybody who wouldn't, and who understands what's going on in Vietnam, is, is completely, you know, delusionally immoral. Of course I would burn down a library to end the war in Vietnam, but burning down a library is not going to end the war in Vietnam. It's only going to make things worse. And so, no, I would not burn down a library to end the war in Vietnam because it won't end the war in Vietnam and it won't contribute to ending the war in Vietnam. But if you're asking me whether it would be ethically warranted if it would succeed, then my answer has to be yes, of course it would. And that brings us to, well, what about violence around global warming? What about violence around the distribution of uh, vaccines? What about violence around the violence of police in, in uh, black communities? What about violence, and so on and so forth. Well, the calculation is a pragmatic one. Is it something that can have an effect uh, that is worthy, that is desirable, that outweighs the negatives? What are the negatives? Engaging in such activities is corrupting. Violence tends to corrupt. Engaging in such activities puts off large swaths, huge swaths of people who we presumably want to reach. Engaging in such activities polarizes the situation and justifies a response in kind. That is, more violence coming down on us. And if it turned out that there was some thing that you could do, I don't know, that, that would have a fundamental effect and would change global warming, even though it was violent and even though it might have all those impacts, if it would curtail global warming, well, then it would certainly be something that you'd have to consider. But what seems to me the case is that, although I can understand the inclination that people are starting to feel about the efficacy of violence or the necessity of violence. It's really a cheap way out. What's needed is so many people opposing whatever it is that you're, you're talking about, the monopolization of vaccines, the pouring of garbage into the air, the, the violence of repression in various communities and so on, whatever it is that you're talking about. What's needed to deal with it is widespread very widespread awareness and militance in opposition, creating a situation in which those who perpetrate it, those who defend it, um, have to change, have to change, have to give in, because there's too much to lose given the, the scale of the opposition. And oftentimes I think the, the inclination to be violent is sort of like an inclination to dodge the complicated question. How do you get people who are seeing what's wrong and not moving to move. 
Instead of that, somebody thinks, well, I'll just light a fuse. It's a lot easier. It is a lot easier. It's just that it doesn't have any positive effect. It doesn't organize. In fact, it repels. It, it tends to diminish the prospects of reaching a larger audience. It tends to diminish the capacity of standing up against the powers that be by giving them the legitimacy and the opportunity to repress us in turn. Uh, these cases have often been made, but I think the thing that I'm trying to get across is that when you feel an inclination to be violent, I certainly empathize with it. I well understand it, and I think feeling it is not out of place, but I think that it's necessary to think about whether or not it's being done just to express a desperate emotion, or whether it's being done because it actually can have some positive effect. And so let me just uh, uh, come to another thing that comes to mind in context of all that has been discussed, which is young people. I don't even know if I can define that. What's a young person? Let's say people who are near the end of high school, getting out of high school, college age, just gotten out of college. It seems to me that that constituency, let's call it, is under incredible pressure that it has to be at this point balancing on a knife edge a knife edge between sort of depressed resignation and explosion an explosion without a lot of clarity about what kind of eruption from them can have a positive effect it's a difficult situation it's a situation you have to I mean I find myself having to empathize with people of that age looking at the world and seeing just how bleak things do in fact look, just how nasty the prospects are, and not feeling like there's a way to go, there's a way to, there's a way to respond, like they have any efficacy, any sense of, of ability to impact what's going on. I think this might fuel a whole lot of what we see, a whole lot of the craziness that goes on in social media, a whole lot of the inclination to fight with each other, to, to denigrate each other, um, and a whole lot of depression. All I can say is, for my generation, it was the movements of the 60s that let at least a lot of us escape from those kinds of feelings into what I think were very productive endeavors. We didn't succeed ultimately in changing the world, or, well, we did change it somewhat, but we didn't succeed in fundamentally changing the world. And uh, the current generation is going to need to do exactly that if there's going to be a future. So sometime, before too long, some of those young people are going to have to stand up and start putting forward a viewpoint and in particular a way of communicating that reaches out to wide audiences and galvanizes them. Otherwise, it's not obvious where everything is going to go. And that said, this is Michael Albert signing off for this episode of Revolution Z.